Can you imagine owning the windmill in front of your window? Getting your green energy from it? Co-deciding the dividend from it? Well, this is not a utopian illusion, but a business model called cooperatives, which is the topic of episode 7 of our Community Renewables podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag, and I am joined by producer and energy transition chronicler, Craig Morris. Hello, everyone. So, Craig, we have less than optimal conditions here today. It's really hot in the studio, so we have the ceiling fans on. I don't know if you can hear them. And if you can just barely hear them, we are dying in here, so please bear with us. Anyway, back to our topic. What is a cooperative or a co-op? The first co-ops emerged in the mid-19th century when mass production appeared. Small entrepreneurs couldn't compete with large industries that produce less expensive but poorly made goods, mostly produced with unfair labor practices. Child labor, long hours, low payment. Workers lost control over working conditions. And local producers, who usually used the finest material and traditional techniques, lost out in the new market too. Thus, a new form of organization was born, where workers own a share of their business to govern themselves. An investor-oriented firm strives for profit maximization. A cooperative strives to maximize benefits for its members. By uniting, they overcome the curse of smallness. A family farm may be too small to justify, say, the purchase of a tractor. In a co-op, farmers share machines. Cooperatives are thus a form of member-owned businesses. Citizens are owners and consumers at the same time. For example, district heating co-ops provide thermal energy to their members. In investor-owned businesses, investors elect a board of directors who oversee the company. The main aim is to post profits. And voting rights are in line with the shares held. So if you own more of the company, your vote counts more. But in a member-owned business, voting rights are distributed by person or by the amount of usage, not the amount of your investment. So co-ops are democracy in business. Yeah, we should point out here that lots of forms of community renewables are not co-ops. A family with a solar roof, a small limited liability firm of locals who built a wind farm, and even municipal utilities, these things can be seen as community projects. They don't have to be co-ops. Right. The literature describes four characteristics for community energy. First, community of locality. So your project is in your community. Second, it's mission-driven, not profit-driven. So there's more altruism than profit-seeking. Third, openness. Anyone can join. And finally, the influence of citizens. Yeah, citizens as stakeholders, not shareholders. We often talk about shareholder value with corporations. With co-ops, we talk about stakeholder value more. So instead of just profits for investors, everyone impacted by the business, anyone with a stake in it, should benefit. Mostly the members, of course. And the co-op idea was actually born in the UK. Initially, a factory owner wanted his workers to be able to purchase at wholesale prices. So he opened a co-op for them to shop at. That way, he didn't have to raise their pay. They got more from what they earned by buying at the local co-op. And later, savings and loan or SNL banks became popular. Locals would put their savings in a bank that also gave loans to people like them, whereas big finance capital was more interested in big, sexy deals. I am told that the UK no longer has savings and loan banks, but we still have them in Germany. And so, Rebecca, what about energy co-ops here in Germany? So, energy cooperatives are nothing new in Germany. In the beginning of the 20th century, electricity cooperatives were quite widespread in rural areas. We had around 6,000. 
Most of them have disappeared by now, but with a new increase of renewable energy cooperatives, I think there were some 1,700 in 2016, some have spoken of a renaissance of energy co-ops. The founding boom started in 2006. And, and so what helped energy cooperatives boom that year in Germany? The Renewable Energy Act, or EEG, of 2000 provided a high degree of investor security with feed and tariffs. And the revision of the German Cooperative Act in 2006 made it easier to found cooperatives for, and I quote, social and cultural purposes. Only three instead of seven founding members are needed, for instance. And renewable energy falls under the social purposes. But in recent years, fewer energy co-ops have been founded. And what caused this decline? Partly the EEG of 2014. Instead of straightforward feed and tariffs, we now have auctions, direct marketing, power purchase agreements, and so on. So small and mid-sized projects need more specialized knowledge, which makes it harder for co-ops, especially for those without full-time employees. The co-ops themselves see it this way. Back in 2013, when the number of newly founded co-ops started to fall, a survey conducted by the DGRV, that's the umbrella organization of co-ops in Germany, all co-ops, not just energy co-ops. Right, and almost half of its members said that the major hurdle for renewables is constantly changing laws. So again, community renewable groups need to professionalize. Okay, and let me just add some figures from the DGRV's latest survey from 2019 with data from 2018. I often hear people say, yeah, community groups are great, but they can't be big, so do they really matter? Well, it turns out that the average amount of equity in German renewable co-ops is more than 2 million euros. With that much equity you can probably leverage enough of a loan to bring your project up to 10 million. And that's just the average. 10% of these renewable co-ops had anywhere from 4 to 20 million in equity. And then you might hear people say, well, this is just for the rich. But it turns out that the average minimum share, the amount you need to fork over to become a member, is 511 euros. And the maximum they found was 6,000. So these co-ops really are open to a lot of people. Okay, I think we have a good overview now. Let's start with our first guest today. He has been an environmentalist since the age of 15. His name is Dirk van Sintjan and he is the president of Rescoop, the European Federation of Citizen Renewable Energy Cooperatives, founded in 2013. For more than 30 years, Dirk van Sintian has been committed to a citizen-supported energy transition. In 1991, he and eight colleagues at his kitchen table founded the energy cooperative EcoPower to promote the development of renewables in Belgium. This is how the largest energy cooperative in Flanders was created. It now has 60,000 members. As president of Rescoop, He helped push through important laws for citizen energy in the EU's second Renewable Energy Directive, or RED2, which we have talked about a lot in this podcast. So I'm very curious to hear how he will answer our big question, is RED2 toothless? Here's Dirk van Sintian. What role did you and your organization, Rescoop, play in getting red to uh, formulated and passed? Yeah, we, we came up with the idea of what, what we would like is a sort of recognition of what we do, what energy cooperatives have been doing, and also recognition of us being different from other players on the energy market. So the fact that we are actually not profit-driven, but that we that, uh, well, when there's profit, that's fine, but that the, the driver for taking initiative as an energy cooperative is something, often something different. It's the response to a problem, might be energy poverty or yeah, whatever. Yeah. 
Well, so how would you answer my question about whether Red 2 is toothless? No, no, no. The challenge now is now we have these directives, but we know from the past that a directive is always a compromise between between the commission, mm-hmm. between the parliament and, and the, the council, mm-hmm. the council being the member states. And, and we've seen what happened in these uh, in these three uh, uh, different parties and, and, and who is rather conservative, rather more for fossil fuel and, and nuclear and who's more favorable favorable of renewables, who's more favorable of citizens being uh, taking a more important place. So mm-hmm. we've seen in, in DGs people acting for these different stakeholders and, 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 and struggling and fighting against each other. So and then we've seen very conservative member states, member states uh, Germany was a very conservative member state, by the way. Yeah, yeah. That that's the irony of all of this. Um, yeah. Germany has this reputation abroad for being this big community energy, you know, grassroots renewables uh, country, and yet when I talk to people in Brussels, they say the federal government from Germany has not been helpful towards renewables and towards no, community not at energy. All. Yeah, not at all. No. no. Yeah. Weird. Well, tell us a little bit uh, about Rescoop. Um, what what are you specifically? Well, actually, we uh, we were born out of a uh, <laughs> the first contacts we as a as a Belgian Flemish cooperative with another cooperative across borders mm-hmm. was with with our, our French uh, colleagues from Enercoop. Mm-hmm. They just started up and immediately had a, a big obstacle that was that uh, they wanted to to supply green electricity to to citizens, mm-hmm. and um, and they could only buy green electricity. That's how the system was in in France then. They could only buy it from in, uh, from L- EDF, mm-hmm. the state monopolist, mm-hmm. but they they demanded a, a bank guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. Let me get this straight. EDF asked. This co-op, this French co-op for yeah. a bank guarantee. Yeah, yeah. What were they going to do with that money? What was the point? Now, the bank guarantee that stays on an account on the bank. Yeah? So there's, there's this is that money. Yeah. So well, I mean, there must have been some justification given. Well, yeah, the justification is they wanted to guarantee that they would get paid. No. Okay. For for the electricity they provide. So and and they reached out to us and we we were able to give them this guarantee together with our our bank at that moment three of us mm-hmm. and and a uh, and a French uh, insurance company uh, rather progressive uh, alternative insurance company and so this was well we had this idea well we can work together that's mm-hmm. interesting and then we discovered more and more energy cooperatives across Europe and we met for the first time in I think in 2008 in the European Parliament and and now we've been growing I think we now represent about half of the existing energy cooperatives across Europe mm-hmm. okay uh, what we are missing is mainly the Scandinavian countries where there are many mm-hmm. energy cooperatives mainly in Denmark but they are not organized. There are about a thousand of them. Wow. Yeah. Oh, in a small of, country of, too, yeah. Of which 320 district heating cooperatives, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of the district heating is, is cooperatives in Denmark. Okay. Do you have some, some of the latest sort of information about how well EcoPower is performing? We now have almost 60,000 members. I think last year more than 2,000 people joined the cooperative, mm-hmm. and they still bring on average about 1,000 euros. So mm-hmm. the capital is, is now more than 60 million euro, I think. Mm-hmm. Is it easy to get projects built in Belgium? This is very difficult in Belgium mm-hmm. because we there are people living everywhere. Yeah. And there are NATO pipelines and whatever gas pipelines. NATO pipelines? Yeah, NATO, yeah. What is a NATO pipeline? 
uh, they have secret pipelines. Secret pipelines, okay. Yeah, that's good. Enough. Secret, yeah, yeah. yeah, but they use them commercially as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's a slight advantage there. Yeah. Are you still offering um, competitive prices to you know retail customers and also have one of the highest levels of customer satisfaction? Uh, I think the satisfaction is is the best. Okay. The, the price this depends. Huh? So for the moment we are not the cheapest, but right. our members they don't really care. I have the. <laughs> so if I'm sitting there and I want to become a customer, do I have to become a member? Yes. Yeah. So I basically choose you as a power provider. And then I give you a thousand as capital, or no, as two, no. two fifty, two fifty. Yeah. So yeah. there's a minimum of two fifty. The average that people um, invest is a thousand, and yeah. this and, and and they get if if things go well, they get a dividend on the thousand. Yeah. for last year is two percent. So most of our members, I think more than seven, uh, more than seventy percent, only have one share. Hmm. So these are typically the people coming for the low prices and. Let's say that um, most of the Flemish people, they still have a, a, a simple meter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they don't have a, a day-night meter or something. Okay. So, and for these people with the low consumption, and especially when they have solar panels, we are always, practically always the best mm-hmm. supplier. Okay. You started off, you were an English teacher or you... You well, I should have been. You should have been, should yeah. Have yeah. Been. I was unemployed, and uh, there was a not-for-profit organization that, that wanted to restore two water mills on a, on a river here in the center of Belgium. Well, the government gave money to employ unemployed people, mm-hmm. and, and they offered me a job, and I, that's how I came into the... A renewable energy sector mm-hmm. <laughs> by coincidence, yeah. And you you got a an old historic water mill running again. Yeah, yeah. That's where where I live as well, and where EcoPower was founded in 1991. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. You have been critical about sort of the German producers of renewables not assuming enough responsibility for grid stability and not really becoming true market players. Uh, by 2050, this we could supply the grid. 50% of the electricity then could come from citizens and groups of citizens. So, mm-hmm. so then you're an important player. Huh? Mm-hmm. You can only do this if you also take up responsibility. Huh? Mm-hmm. When the Commission came up with these definitions of energy communities, so we were buccaneers, mm-hmm. free riders, pirates, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. rich people wanting to go off grid and and uh, asocial people, right. uh, asocial people. We, we can only get recognition if we take responsibility. Yeah? So now with the new directives, every member state has to uh, have a, a support mechanism to help citizens set up these these energy communities. Yeah? So, so also Germany has to, has to help citizens to set up these energy communities. But you can't expect that you, you don't have to pay for the grid if you use it. Huh? You have also been successful in Belgian auctions. Mm. At the same time, I have been told by some of the Germans, well, but the Belgian auctions are different. Well, it's completely different. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> so now if you want to build a wind farm, you have to win the auction and then you, you get a, some support for your production. Well, in Belgium, if you have a permit to build a wind turbine, you get the support. <laughs> that's, that's no problem. Huh? Well, I mean, what, where's, Here, where does the auction come in there? Government, different authorities at different levels, they have land and they auction the right to use their land to put wind turbines. Uh-huh. So it's or, not the price of electricity? No, no, no. We have a feed-in premium system, which means that they guarantee, uh, now it lowered a bit, so for wind it's 7.5% return on investment, for solar it's 45 mm-hmm. Why there is a difference, no one knows, but... There okay. is a difference. Okay. So once you get a permit, you're quite sure of your return. So we are quite successful as cooperatives in winning public auctions of the right to use the land of a, of a public authority. Okay, but what are the, what are the criteria in the auctions? Like, how do they decide who gets the permit? Well, 
that's what's interesting. Of course, we advocate the fact that they favor uh, participation of citizens. And this is what a lot of public authorities do. Well, our competitors, they say, well, it's written for you. <laughs> but of course, they, they their reaction was they set up their own energy cooperatives. <laughs> and legally, it's more or less the same. Yeah. EDF has a cooperative in Belgium. NG Electrobel has a cooperative in Belgium. They all have cooperatives. Are these real cooperatives or are these yeah, sort of yeah, front they're, groups? They're, they're, no, no, no. For the Belgian state, they are identical to us. Well, for us, these are not real cooperatives because they are controlled by a utility, a big utility. Mm. Uh, in, in, in the board, people don't have anything to say. They mm. Actually, they don't own the wind turbines. They just give a subordinate loan to... Uh, mm. So... Uh, and but what's interesting, Europe, in the European definitions, they're not considered as energy communities. It's a co-op for Belgium, but it doesn't fit the EU rule. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. that's it. Okay. So that's a fight we have in Belgium. So we want to get them out of the cooperative movement. <laughs> yeah. So so that's okay. But, well, yeah. do you feel like the uh, Belgian system is something that other EU member states should be looking at? Our members in Germany. And it's it's uh, I understand the reaction. They said, "Well, uh, a complete new system." So then they get nervous and they are unsure. So they they would like to make it better. Yeah, they, they want to make the system the, the auction system better. Yeah? Well, actually, most of the German community groups that I talked to, they would love a change uh, going back yeah. to some kind of feed-in tariff. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Europe allows this. Huh? Yeah, but it's so, not happening. So the European directives allow a lot of interpretation margin. Huh? Mm -hmm. But there are certain provisions that they have to do, and that's create the enabling framework for energy communities. But German, and, Germany has not done that. No, but they have to. So now Europe has put, at least in words, the citizen in the center of the energy transition. Huh? Mm -hmm. Now the transposition in every member state is the, the tricky thing. So we now uh, are, are finishing a, a transposition guide for member states where we show them what we would like, what some member states already have done and what, what are, can be considered as as good examples. So well, Do you have a couple you could mention? We've been telling them already for a few years that how Scotland is handling things. They have a sub-target for community energy mm -hmm. combined with a, a enabling framework where it's not only money in, in loan to a local community, but also technical, uh, financial, organizational advice mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. by Local Energy Scotland. Mm -hmm. So this has led to the fact that there is an enormous growth in, in community energy and that also... Private developers, uh, so the, the piece of the cake was uh, was so big that they were interested in de co-developing with communities, mm -hmm. so so that they could raise the threshold for community energy uh, already twice. Yeah, and, in, in a way, this network of expertise is kind of um, facilitating the professionalization yeah. that you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, for instance, in Belgium, the professionalization comes from the Federation of Energy Cooperatives, whereas in other countries, it, it might be a, an, an energy agency who's doing this or something. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ireland more or less followed the example. Yeah. And they already had their first tender. So they have a separate tender for community energy. So yeah. it's still tenders. That could be also be an example for Germany that they say, well, we tender now 100 uh, megawatt uh, wind and 50 megawatt is for energy community. Then your definition of what is an energy community must be very good. I mean, you, you said 100 megawatts and 50 megawatts could be community energy. That's 50%. In Ireland, it's 1%. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's not the same thing, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but they're already happy with this. <laughs> yeah, well, that... Nothing. <laughs> Uh, probably you know in the Netherlands in the climate agreement they aim for 50% participation of citizens in, in okay. onshore wind development. Okay, all right. It is not an obligation, hmm. but their their system is so that the the permits are given by the municipalities. Uh -huh. We are now advocating to local authorities that the energy transition will only succeed if 
it's owned by the citizens. Mm -hmm. If in rural areas in France, these wind turbines that are popping up there, that the profits stay local mm -hmm. as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And we don't want 100%. We're not greedy. We want 50%. So in, in Belgium, 90% of the cost of the, of the feed-in premium system mm -hmm. is reflected in the tariffs of low-tension customers, which mm -hmm. are mainly citizens and small yeah. enterprises. So if we can, can afford 90% to finance 90% of the energy transition, why can't we own 50%? It's reasonable. <laughs> and, and local mayors, they understand. Yeah. If they, we, we tell them, look at the money going out of your community for gas, oil, coal, uranium, whatever. And if you can can change this to your own renewable energy and, and uh, be more efficient, mm. suppose only half of the money stays local and it accumulates instead of leaving, mm -hmm. well, that will change your local economy, your local society mm. in 10 years' time completely. Yeah. yeah. That's the typical prejudice you mentioned, Craig. Co-ops are only for rich people. He faces that too. Yeah, it's ironic. Uh, the people worried the least about money are the ones called free riders and asocial. He also talks about how hard it is to define co-ops. Germany also tried to define community energy in its onshore wind auctions. And we had the same problem. Lots of developers tried to fit their description so they could get preferential treatment. Indeed. This is called gaming the system, and it is a risk policymakers run whenever they try to provide some group with special benefits. So it happens all the time, and it's not the end of the world, as long as the intended group also benefits. We'll come back to those German wind auctions in a later episode. I'd like to talk more about the economic power of renewable cooperatives in Germany. The amount of borrowed capital they had in 2014 was about 3 billion euros. That's billion with a B. The equity was about 1 billion euros. About half of the renewable cooperatives did not need borrowed capital for their founding phase. And when they borrowed, 50% came from cooperative banks. Yeah, and by the way, that's an equity ratio of around three to one. Any finance people listening will know that's a pretty high number. So there's still a lot of pent-up potential. Community groups can do a lot more. I, I like to say that community renewables unleashes all this pent-up capital. People are looking for ways to put their small savings into something meaningful that will benefit their community. And all those small savings add up quickly. Dirk also says that fossil and nuclear interest at the EU level are a problem. We will hear from various folks in this podcast that these groups work against renewables at the highest levels. And I'm glad he mentioned that Germany has not been helpful at the EU level for community renewables. I mean, Germany has this reputation of being this great place for such projects. But everyone I know in Brussels says the German influence has been harmful. So it's important to keep in mind that countries are not a monolith. Germany consists of grassroots groups that build renewables and of top politicians who protect the country as an industrial giant. Finally, he gives a good example of the freedom of contracts that Professor Halkop talked about in episode 5. French power giant EDF wanted a bank guarantee from a small French green power provider, and so the small company had to scramble to get one. Doesn't sound like the smaller player had much freedom to negotiate. And that story is also an example of professionalization. Luckily, Riskub was there. And all of these processes over contracts, you know, monitoring, penalties, enforcement, negotiations, and so on, they all build up trust when you do them by spending quality time among members of a co-op. 
where the buyer is the seller and vice versa. And what about how Dirk says we can do 50%? That's an amazing number, and it just goes to show what the potential is, but also why conventional energy firms might easily see community efforts as taking away half of the pie. RED2 is the directive that aims to accelerate community renewables. How do people who support community projects see it? So we asked some interview partners you heard in previous episodes. Specifically, Quack asked David Toke if RED2 is enforceable or toothless. Yes, of course it's toothless. I mean, the uh, fantastic thing that the EU did do was the 2009 Renewable Energy Directive, which was mandatory. I mean, in the outcome, it didn't actually matter that uh, penalties haven't been enforced on people who haven't uh, achieved it. This Renewable Energy Directive has, has, has no discernible effects, as far as I can see. This was an interesting comment, because what Dave says here, basically, is that the previous Uh, renewable energy directive was enforceable, but was in fact not enforced. Um, so it was essentially just the threat of enforceability uh, that drove at least enough member states in the right direction. And we don't have even that with the new renewable energy directive. You may also remember Stefan Bayerlein, who runs a district heat network in a small town in Bavaria. He talked about how big firms have come to understand that community projects make the pie smaller for them. Our impression is that politics, or maybe I should say it's the lobbyists, they understood that the big energy companies were losing market shares. And I think these firms realized that they were losing political influence as a result. And they lobbied to get new rules for energy that basically prevent community energy groups from starting any new projects at all. So RED2 is a counter-argument. It's a policy empowering community energy projects not driven by big utilities. RED2 puts citizens and not consumers in the driver's seat. Dirk says this is new in Europe. This will strengthen democracy. And indeed, this struggle between big and small has been going on at many levels for years. You may remember Dieter Mensen from episode 2, the founder of a citizen-owned wind power operator. He talked about how the German Wind Energy Association, BWE, saw a need to form a special committee for community projects. Here's the question Craig asked. Do you plan on participating in some of the auctions? Uh, well, if, with a new project, we would have to do that. But that's why I'm also engaged in the, in the German Wind Power Association. Uh, I'm, I'm the spokesperson for the Bürgerwindbeirat, which is sort of an advisory committee on, on citizen-owned wind farms. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was formed six years ago within the German Wind Power Association. I don't know if you know this, but we, we have several of these advisory committees. There are advisory committees on legal questions or for there are advisory committees for, for the developers of wind farms, for the operators and so on. Mm -hmm. And we felt, you know, being sort of the, the pioneers within the, the German Wind Power Association, that we were losing influence and that these uh, professionals were taking over in a way, yes. Yeah. Uh, also the, the turbine manufacturers, the big mm. ones. The professionals, indeed. Have I mentioned that community groups need to professionalize? Anyway, let's move on to our last guest, Andreas Wieck. He manages the German Office of Energy Cooperatives under the umbrella of the Cooperative Association, or DGRV. 
That's the organization we mentioned earlier that conducts the annual survey of energy co-ops in Germany. Currently, 869 energy co-ops with 180,000 members are represented by the DGRV. But as Andrea says, the DGRV and the cooperative spirit it represents is much bigger. So, without further ado, here's Craig's interview with Andreas Wieg. Um, let's start off with who you are, Andreas Wieg, and what the DGRV does. We represent uh, more than 5,000 cooperatives in Germany with more or less 20 million members. Mm -hmm. 20 uh, million members? Yes. In a country of 80 million people? Yes. So, so one out means, of four Germans is in a cooperative? Yes. Unfortunately, we don't have a cooperative political party. Otherwise, we <laughs> would... <laughs> Be number one. Okay. Yes, maybe, maybe. Most of these members are uh, members of the cooperative banks. Yeah, but we also have uh, yeah many members in the agricultural sector and in the cooperative retail sector. Right, right. And so these are like savings and loans banks. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So in other words, because uh, we're talking about energy today, you do a lot more than, than just energy, renewable energy cooperatives. Yes, that's right. Um, oh, okay. Of course, we do advocacy work for this special group of cooperatives, mm -hmm. the 860 new renewable energy cooperatives and um, yeah they they have by the way they have more or less 180,000 members so maybe this will be interesting later if we talk about the social acceptance renewable energy in Germany well are energy cooperatives important for this organization i mean it seems like 180,000 people out of 20 million wouldn't be a big deal of course they are very important uh, to us. One reason is that the energy transition and the cooperative energy transition is very important for the um, for the whole society. Can you tell us a little bit about why cooperatives are important like to society? Uh, what role do they play in the economy? Sure. The basic idea uh, of the cooperative is to uh, is cooperation, to become stronger or to have to get more market power. Mm -hmm. In case of energy cooperatives, mm -hmm. this means that uh, individuals can join, that they can work together, that they are able to, to participate in energy projects. If you just want to do this by yourself, you probably don't have the expertise. And that's kind of part of what you do, I believe, isn't it? I mean, wh where's professionalization going? Raising up the, the capacity in cooperatives, it's not, it's not that easy. Energy cooperatives are uh, mostly small businesses and run by, by yeah, volunteering managers, let's say. Right, right, yeah. And uh, this means that the board members and the CEOs, that they can only uh, work for the cooperatives during their leisure time. So that's, right. that's the limitation. Huh? Right, right. One way to uh, overcome this, uh, these limitations might be the merging of cooperatives. Mm -hmm. What we want is to, to keep the business and to keep the economic stability of the cooperative. And mm -hmm. that's, that's our goal. And uh, if this is helpful to, to hire somebody in a full-time position, uh, Mm -hmm. If this is the only way, then, then we should do this. Uh, what you're saying is we're heading towards a sort of consolidation. Hopefully it will be a emerging process so that we, that we get stronger cooperatives at mm -hmm. the end. Okay. So cooperatives have not been very successful in auctions in Germany for renewable energy. So why don't we just pass a law saying that if you're a cooperative, you get feed-in tariffs and you don't have to take part in auctions? A special exemption for cooperatives would mean that we uh, that we are privileged uh, compared to other legal forms, right. and this will never happen. Uh, right. This is and this is not, uh, by the way, this is not what we want. Yeah? Okay. Because you can you can always see if you have some special reliefs for special kind of organizations or legal forms, then you always get problems uh, that uh, you don't you don't get real cooperatives 
everyone tries to become a cooperative at that point every, to get the special every, treatment. Exactly, and they don't care the cooperative principle. Right. Yeah. This is okay. this is important to us. You, I mean, you said you don't want this ex exception for cooperatives. What do you want for energy cooperatives in the future? Uh, that we get something what we call the level playing field. Uh, we don't have that now. Uh, I don't think so. Check the auctions for wind energy. You can check the ones for uh, solar energy. You don't find cooperatives. The, the, not not a single cooperative. No. Sometimes we have cooperatives as a partner in a project. We even don't have proposals. There are different ideas to, to change this, mm -hmm. uh, uh, to introduce special auctions for smaller entities. Like in energy cooperatives, you will always lose against the big project developer. Uh, maybe we need a better definition for citizen energy or for community energy. Nobody's against citizens, yeah. of course, yeah. Yeah. But it's uh, not that easy to find supporters for citizen energy, the, the idea of citizen energy communities. Have you, in your experience, found that cooperatives also somehow improve acceptance of these projects? Uh, this is our experience, and this is what we, what we learned, especially in the last 12, 14 years. When you involve the people directly mm -hmm. in a project, you get social acceptance. It's hard to explain what what's going on there, but it seems that something is changing in the head of the peoples when they come together, when they work together, when they have a successful their successful first project. So then they feel this kind of of social community or this motivation to do something. You can see this in any kind of uh, new cooperative. We don't have supermarkets in in smaller. Uh, communities mm -hmm. uh, in villages. Many of our community pubs are closing, which is going on in a similar way in the UK, by uh, the way. Right. So the question is, how can you uh, keep this kind of local infrastructure? And one way is to found a cooperative. So the people, they, they come together and they are happy to work together mm -hmm. uh, and they are happy to invest their money into a local project. And this is motivating individuals to spend their leisure time to provide their um, expertise and and money and capacity to keep this this kind of infrastructure. This is the key and secret uh, of local energy or local cooperatives, mm -hmm. and also the secret uh, of local energy cooperatives. It's it's the same kind of social community inside okay. this this organization. The cooperative idea prefers collaborative economics over profit maximization. It also allows people to decide when some local infrastructure must continue, even when it's no longer profitable, like pubs in the UK. And that reminds me of a conversation I had with the citizen group that wanted to buy back Berlin's power grid. So the guy I was talking to said, everybody asks us, why we think we can manage the grid better. And he told me, we don't. We will hire all the same people, but we want the profits, which currently flow to Scandinavia, to stay in Berlin, and we want to decide what happens with that money. Andreas Wieck also says social community is the secret to success. And studies conducted in other countries prove that a sense of ownership leads to a more positive attitude towards the neighboring renewable projects. Plus, many renewable co-op members reconsider their own energy consumption and investment behavior. And this reminds me of another story. A few months ago, I met a guy named Chris Blake. He initiated the Skyline project in a village in Wales. The idea was to give local people the control and ownership to shape their own environment. They were to manage the surroundings of their village, hundreds of hectares for hundreds of years. And you know what happened? They came up with brilliant ideas, 
creating jobs from forestry, supporting small holdings and food projects, improving public access and supporting wildlife. They came up with sustainable solutions on an ecological, economic and social level. And they took ownership. Yeah, I had never heard of that project. So we'll put a link in the show notes. And it also reminds me of the Irish Citizens Assembly, which also came up with climate ideas more progressive than politicians would have probably deemed politically feasible. I would like to highlight some more advantages of cooperatives. So if your main objective as a cooperative is not profit maximization, but ethical aims, and in this case providing a climate-friendly energy system, People perceive you as more trustworthy, more transparent, and less exploitative. And think about the benefits for the community. They pay taxes, they generate business for local crafts, and they work with local banks. All in all, they set impulses for local economic development. I don't think we should let that argument be swept under the carpet. And let's face it, cooperatives have a much more positive image in the general public than investor-owned firms do who aim at maximizing shareholder value. Property rights in the hands of citizens increase credibility. We have already had an episode on cost. But here's another argument worth mentioning briefly. Renewable energy co-ops help us decrease the cost of new technologies because they help spread knowledge about these technologies. People become familiar with the tech we will need for the transition because co-ops are so hands-on. There are so many benefits for society we rarely take into account in public debates when we talk only about costs. And studies have also shown that people are willing to pay more for green electricity if there's price transparency. In other words, if everyone understands that the power is of better quality. Yeah, we'll put a link to one of those studies in the show notes. But still, the professionalization thing worries me. Granted, most jobs today are professionalized. Hardly anyone knows how to repair most things in their homes, for instance. Yeah, Albert Einstein once said that Goethe was the last person who understood everything And Goethe died in 1832. That's pretty funny. So Andreas wants small co-ops to merge and create bigger, more professional co-ops. But are they then still local? I mean, how will locals feel about this? Look, I love the volunteer spirit as much as anyone. And that's great if you want to save your local pub. I can serve you a beer. But if you want a savings and loan bank, you might want professionals. You, you certainly don't want me behind that counter. I mean, my German mother-in-law, she can do amazing things with her hands, cook anything from scratch, tailor-make clothes from fabric, you name it. But I have never seen her generate electricity. And so maybe we just need to accept that electricity is kind of complicated. And we simply do need to be professionals in the energy sector, even as community groups. So joining forces to share that expertise, the way farmers and co-ops share tractors, sounds like a good thing. So Rebecca, what are your takeaways? Okay, so one of my takeaways is citizens and co-ops are not greedy. Very good. Um, also, Red 2 is maybe or hopefully the start of putting citizens and not consumers at the heart of policy making. And finally, renewables can no longer be a hobby but needs professional management if we want it to survive. You've been listening to the Community Renewables Podcast, produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency. The AEE. For the local Community Renewables Project, LICO. 
The project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Program 2014 to 2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance BBEN and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag. Freitag for future! And our producer is energy transition chronicler Craig Morris, advisor at the AEE. The overdubbing of the interviews in German was spoken by Pascal Morris. The music throughout this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan. Tricolor! Check the show notes for links to their music. Art is what makes us human. So support your local artists after all this corona business is over. Okay, so Rebecca, yeah. today uh, I'm up with the jokes, right? Right. Okay, so do you know these knock-knock jokes in English? I mean, yeah, it's been a time, but I know them. Okay, I, I mean, it's a weird thing because I, I don't think you really have them in German, do you? No. Yeah, okay, so it's kind of an English-specific... Uh, you know, uh, form of jokes. So let's just do one to, to get started. Go ahead. Knock, knock. Who's there? Leon. Leon who? Leon me <laughs> when you're not strong. Wow. Anyway, yeah, so that's, that, that's the idea. Okay, awesome, so, okay. So next one. Knock, knock. Who's there? Keith. Keith who? Kiss me, my sweet princess. Ah! <laughs> That's sweet. Okay, so knock knock. <laughs> Who's there? Kanga. Kanga who? <laughs> no, it's kangaroo. <laughs> okay. Okay, so knock knock. Who's there? Deja. Deja. Deja vu. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. So th then I have to say knock knock instead of. You don't get the answer, you get knock knock again. Okay, and the last one, because. The, the thing I like about the knock-knock jokes yeah. is they can be really corny, but they can also be super creative, and this is my favorite knock-knock joke of all time. Oh, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. here we go. Knock-knock. Who is there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting. Move! <laughs> okay, so, now you know, and we'll see everybody again next week. <laughs> see you next week. Alrighty, bye-bye. Somebody to lean on